Hi, welcome to season three of the Pictures Out There podcast series. This is chat number 10. In this podcast, Lee and Dave chat about false equivalences, Rufus Sewell, football fans, Mexican female politicians, Rolling Stone magazine, the Lord's Prayer, insurance companies, and the ever-popular Carl Sagan. And now, here's Dave and Lee. Well, thank you, Candy, for that kind introduction. This is Lee. And this is Dave. Hey, and welcome back to our Pictures Out There podcast series. Today, Dave, is chat number 10. We would like to extend a warm welcome to our present-day audience. Thank you for listening. Our audience, perhaps years, decades, even centuries from now, dare we guess millennia from now? Hey, people. Our future AI audience, our future alien audience, our universal audience. We're glad to have you listening. Thanks for joining. We always like to begin by having you reflect on these two questions. One, what are your ideals? And two, what are your pictures? Dave. Yeah, so we're going to start off by doing a quick visit to a tool, a life tool that we've talked about before, simple to complex to simple. And that tool is a pathway toward wisdom, pulling out the very simple, most compelling truths from that investigating that we do with our curiosity in Mm. the complex stage. Mm -hmm. It occurs to me, Lee, that lots of times in this stage of misinformation, this era that we're in, Mm -hmm. where the ability to proliferate misinformation to the public or to people is greater than it's ever, ever been. been. Yes. You know, and the, difficult to distinguish between what's real and what is not. Exactly. That it's a good time to talk about false equivalences. And we have a lot of that these days. We have a lot of situations where people are saying, well, this is like this. And if you look at it, you go, no, no. <laughs> it's not like that. Or one thing is as big as the Empire State Building and the other thing is an anthill. <laughs> you know, but people will, for their purposes mm-hmm. or their reasons, will say, these are the same. Yes. Kind of reminds you of that Sesame Street thing. One, one of, of these things, things is not, not like, like the, the other. other. Yeah, it happens a lot. So we thought it'd be good to talk about that because we think we ought to all be wary of that and aware of those situations. Climate change arguments is a wonderful example of that. Mm -hmm. And we have the situation where people will say, well, the climate always changes over time, and it always has. This isn't any different than what has been historically happening. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's very different. It's very different. There's considerable scientific evidence that says that it is different. This is an example where, to me, sometimes you can think of false equivalences as a math equation, Mm. where you would go... Somebody is saying this side of the math equation is the same as that side of the math equation. And so you look at the data, Lee, as you said, that scientists produce relative to climate change. It's not an equation. Right. You know, things are changing dramatically different. We think another great example is the, well, all All politicians politicians lie. And the truth is they don't. No, they don't. Or... Among those who do lie, some lie a lot or all the time. Right. Yeah, and a lot more than others. Mm-hmm. You know, and that does matter. It does. You yeah. know, so the notion of somebody uh, exaggerated something, you know, to make a political point, and that's the same as consistent, outright black and white lying. 
Mm-hmm. Those are not the same. Not That's the same. not an equation. Yeah. That's, you know, a lot of times it seems like the motivation for setting up false equivalences is to say, let us just do what we want. This stuff's the same. Just ignore it. Just go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. This stuff's all the same. You don't have to worry about mm-hmm. it. Everybody does it. Well, why do they want that? Right. They want that for their own reasons, their own motivations. And right. lots of times they're not good ones. That's right. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, false equivalences are used to drive hopelessness, perhaps a sense of inevitability that it's meant to immobilize. So you always stay asleep there, right? We got this covered. So we would encourage everyone to be aware of, quote, well, everybody does it, arguments. Remember when you were a kid and you got in trouble with mom and dad and your response was, well, everybody does it. And that they didn't said, work too well. No, they said then, as we would say now, uh, no, that doesn't matter <laughs> whether everyone's doing it or not. So you can be certain that everybody doesn't when you ever hear everybody does it. I'm trying to remember if I've ever heard an everybody does it argument where really everybody, everybody does did it. do it. It's, I, that's, that's almost a giveaway. I if guess somebody... if you want to argue that everyone breathes, okay, all right. But beyond that... <laughs> So false equivalences lots of times are used to distract from the possibilities of change and the opportunities for our future, you know, to be different. And they are lots of times done to argue for the status quo or to argue against change. And they're frequently done by the powerful Mm -hmm. or wealthy to keep or expand their power or wealth. And uh, we came across a great uh, quote from a show that was recently on one of the the cable networks uh, on TV, and the show was called The Diplomat. And there was a character in this show that was played by the actor Rufus Sewell. And at one point in that series, he said, no one who likes power should ever have it. Mm. I thought that was such a simple, it is. simple statement. Great wisdom in that. And it's an interesting thing to think about. Mm-hmm. If anybody wants power for power's sake, they shouldn't have it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that. I think that's true. I do too. I think that's true. You know, lots of times wanting a bigger role or more power in order to be able then to share that newly acquired power and to spread it to others. Well, that's different mm-hmm. than just wanting to have power to keep it um, or to grow your own power even more. We've talked about our picture for sharing power and that yes. the, and that it's cool to have somebody come to you and say, hey, we'd like to have you have a bigger role mm-hmm. in a company or an organization mm-hmm. because you've done great right. and your team has done great. Here's, here's more power. Mm-hmm. And the key thing then is to immediately figure out how you're going to take that additional power that's been given to your role and, and share, share that it. out. Yeah. yeah. So associated with that, we'll like to share a picture for what we call input and output about this whole misinformation thing. It, and exactly. All of that, right? right. So do we care about what is objectively true on social and political issues and questions. That is a question we should ask of ourselves. Yeah, and I would say we hopefully want to, and I certainly do, and Lee does, we want to know facts. Right. As they exist. As they exist. What is the truth, the objective truth, as much as we can find out? There will be opinions in relation to that truth, but what is the truth? Right, right. Yeah. So if we do care, as you stated, well, how do we go about finding what is objectively true? And when do you know that you have, with great likelihood, 
found out and confirmed the objective truth. And that's not easy these days. No. And I, I would say, you know, hopefully we're all looking for a variety of sources. Mm-hmm. And then as we use those sources to find out the truth, we will probably find out that those sources really vary in terms of the degree to which they go out to actually find the truth or not. And we would ostensibly stop using sources that we've tried to use before, but they have lied or they've deceived us or they haven't really been trying to find out the truth. We'd stop using them and we'd continue looking for multiple sources that are willing to do that. And I think what gets to be tricky here, Lee, we have certainly talked a lot about biases Mm -hmm. and we have confirmation bias. And so lots of times we can go, yeah, no, I went out and looked for multiple sources. And then I found one that agreed with what I already thought. (laughs) So I stopped looking. So I stopped looking. Yes. That is not what we're talking about. Not what we're suggesting or advocating. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hey, and listen, it's work, okay, to go find multiple sources of information. We acknowledge that. Takes time. Yeah. But we just think it's very, very important so that you have a greater likelihood of finding what's actually true. Yep. So Carl Sagan, great scientist, physicist. He has this quote on getting bamboozled that we really, really like, by the way. One of our favorite words. The term bamboozled is underutilized. (laughs) Sagan said, one of the saddest lessons of history is this. If we've been bamboozled long enough, we tend to reject any evidence of the bamboozle. Ah. We're no longer interested in finding the truth. The bamboozle has captured us. It's simply too painful to acknowledge, even to ourselves, that we've been taken, or in other words, hoodwinked, bamboozled, tricked. Once you give a charlatan power over you, you almost never get it back. Yeah, our our biases, our ego, our insecurity, when we've given a charlatan power and realize it, we have to know that it's never too late to take that power back back. it is never too late Mm -hmm. and lots of times lee it seems like there's a sense of privilege that's often the basis and justification for misinformation certainly sending it to other people yes i think i'm better than you so it's okay for me to lie to you Mm -hmm. i'm above you isn't that interesting it is interesting i'm i think i'm better than you or you're not as smart as i am so it's okay to lie to you Mm -hmm. wow Mm mm-hmm when you just step back from that, it's like, what a, what a crazy If you view that, that as that baldly as you just stated it, it's quite stunning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So lots of times there is uh, the ends maintaining that privilege justifies the means, lying. It's just misinformation. It's not true. So knowingly expressing what you know are false equivalences back to that concept. Yes. We would say that's a lie. Lie. Yeah. You know, the, the notion, it's not just this... I called it black, but it's white. We're saying that if you set up something as an equivalent thing, and you know they're not equivalent, mm-hmm. we're calling it a lie. Yes. You know, this addiction and the invisibility of the power of privilege. Yeah, we're not always aware of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it plays out in all sorts of ways. We had kind of a funny, funny <laughs> one happen to me, you know, earlier in this sports year. Lee and I love sports. Yep. You know, those of you in the future, there's this game called football. football. You're probably playing flag football or touch football now because you've probably taken the violence out of the sport. Or maybe so. just using bots. <laughs> or using bots, right? I don't, I don't know if that'll be quite as satisfying to fans, but it uh, might be. might be more satisfying. But we had a game earlier this year where the Texas Longhorns, one of my favorites, 
played Alabama, who is a perennial national contender, and Texas surprisingly won. Right. And I was listening to a call-in show. Those of you in the future, this is where sports fans call into a, a TV personality and complain, bitch, moan, you know, yeah. give comments about things. And there's a show called The Paul Feinbaum Show. And uh, fan, Alabama fans were calling into this and suggesting that the coach ought to be fired of Alabama, Nick Saban, who's the what? most successful college football coach of all time. What's he won? Five national championships? Five I or think? six yeah. or something like yeah. that. And I was listening to this and going, literally every other university in the country would love to have Nick Saban for their coach. Yes, <laughs> you know? every. And you guys because of a sense of privilege that you deserve to be national champions every year, mm -hmm. have completely lost your perspective. Mm. Completely lost your perspective. Yep. And privilege does that mm -hmm. to us where we really can't even see truth. That's right. You know? Yeah. So it was such a funny kind of non-serious, ridiculous example. That but, but powerful. <laughs> yeah. It was Very powerful TV. example. Privilege can blind us. So let's turn our attention to something we've talked about numerous times in previous podcasts, and that's what we call the Equalist Movement. It's one of our pictures in which we advocate equality for all, for everyone. And that, of course, includes promoting totally equal rights by gender and identity. And with that in mind, here is a newsworthy item. Women win Mexican election primaries, and one is likely to be the first female Mexican president. Wow. So I just want to read excerpts from a news story about that topic. This is Dateline Mexico City. Half of Mexico's Congress is female. The cabinet also is gender balanced, and now women have won the primaries of the two leading political blocs, making it likely that this traditionally macho nation will elect its first female president. And keep in mind, that would happen even before the United States may ever do yep. that. Yeah. So Claudia Scheinbaum, who until recently served as Mexico City's mayor, defeated five men to secure the nomination of the governing party. If the leftist candidate triumphs in the election next June, she will also set another precedent as Mexico's first Jewish head of state. Wow. Woman, Jewish. Wow. Her victory came days after an opposition coalition nominated Ms. Galvez, a business executive and senator of indigenous origin. A quote from a women's rights activist, quote, this is a feminist's dream. The 2024 race, she said, quote, is going to signify a turn in the way that we see women in politics. What a wow moment. And we love wow moments. Yes. You know, as the globe we believe is continuing to move toward equality for all, toward global government to have these kind of events happen is a beautiful thing. Yeah. We have another very interesting and quite different uh, event that came up relative to equality for all in the equalist movement. And this also relates to the notion of power and the invisibility of privilege. Rolling Stone co-founder was removed from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame board. Uh, there's a story about this in the Washington Post and other newspapers from September 17th earlier this year. Jan Wenner, the co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine, who also helped found the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation, has been removed from the hall's board after an interview in which he made comments that were criticized as disparaging female mu musicians and artists of color. 
The Hall said winner has been removed from the board of directors of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation without providing any further details. The decision was announced a day after, one day, after his comments appeared in an interview with the New York Times. And one of the things that we certainly believe is part of our road and journey toward equality for all is understanding consequences Mm -hmm. from prejudice, understanding consequences from privilege and inequality. And this is a consequence that happened. Yeah, so I think there's two things here. It kind of breaks my heart that someone would make those types of comments. The good news here is that he was held accountable. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So in a statement provided to the Hollywood Reporter, another publication, Wenner did apologize for his remarks. He said, in my interview with the New York Times, I made comments that diminished the contributions, the genius, the impact of black and women artists. And I apologize wholeheartedly for those remarks. Hopefully accepting it as a learning opportunity for him. Right. Even at this stage of life. Yeah. The New York Times interview coincided with the upcoming release this month of a book about Wenner called The Masters. It's a compilation of his interviews over the years with music greats Bob Dylan, Jerry Garcia, Mick Jagger, John Lennon, and on and on. However, every musician is white and male. In his book. And we love these guys. Yeah. I mean, Lee and I oh, yeah. don't love get, let's music. Let's don't get started on the rock and roll. And every, every one of these artists that are mentioned in here, we are fans of their music. But this is an abundant world. Yes. This is an abundant world, and it's just crazy. It's you know, mind-blowing right. to suggest that you don't have just as many People black, of color, minority, women. women artists that are at that level. Right. They are. And Lee, I think there's always been in rock and roll or rock music, as you talk about it, there's always been misogyny Mm -hmm. in that industry, unfortunately. At the same time that Mm -hmm. we love the music, there's always been misogyny, and there's certainly always been racism. Absolutely. And and so efforts like this to identify and, and call out that misogyny and that racism, and then to have consequences for it, we think is wonderful. Yeah, it's a step toward the equalist movement. So when Jan Winter was asked about why he did not include female artists or people of color on his list of rock legends, Winter responded, okay, listeners, put on your seatbelt here. Mm -hmm. Winter responded, insofar as the women, just none of them were as articulate enough on this intellectual level. Oh, my God. Seriously? Really? Really. Really. He went on to state that female artists such as Joni Mitchell did not meet his criteria to be considered a philosopher of rock and roll. Only one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Seriously. (laughs) You've you've been in this industry the whole time and you would suggest that. Quote, she didn't, in my mind, meet that test. Not by her work, not by other interviews she did. The people I interviewed were the kind of philosophers of rock and they were... And I'm saying, and they were all white and male. And male. Seriously? Yeah. yeah. It, this yeah. is, to me, surprising and unbelievably disappointing. I, it's, um, it's heart-rending to me because, frankly, I was a big reader of Rolling Stone magazine me for too. many, many years. I really held John Winter in high regard. Yeah. And yeah. now here he is saying these things, so my view of him has certainly diminished. Yeah. So regarding artists of color, Winter continued... Well, of black artists, you know, Stevie Wonder, genius, right? 
I suppose when you use a, a word as broad as masters, which is the title of the book, the fault is using that word. Maybe Marvin Gaye, Curtis Mayfield. I mean, they just didn't articulate at that level. I don't know at what level we're describing here. Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder. That's as high as you get. Would somebody please and find me others. an artist who's more talented or made a bigger contribution Bob to Marley? music than I mean, how, Marley? How, Stevie how Wonder? can we, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's always so ironically because a lot of the white rock and roll musicians that are in his book that he mentions have been very open for all time that they're, their inspiration and their mentors were black, black musicians. musicians. Right. <laughs> so. I mean, we won't get sidetracked on this, but certainly there's a credible argument to be made that the origins of rock and roll, they co-opted black music. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the book, The Masters, is a collection of interviews I've done over the years, Winter said, that seemed to me to best represent an idea of rock and roll's impact on my world. They were not meant to represent the whole of music and its diverse and important originators, but to reflect the high points of my career in interviews, I felt illustrated the breadth and experience in that career. It's all about you, isn't it? Right. They don't reflect my appreciation and admiration for myriad, totemic, world-changing artists whose music and ideas I revere and will celebrate and promote as long as I live. I totally understand the inflammatory nature of badly chosen words and deeply apologize, and I accept the consequences. And we will hope that this truly has been a learning experience for him. I have a little bit of concern about that with the notion of badly chosen words. It's way more than that. Yeah, it's it's about what's your view. Yeah, well, of, what do words what do words reflect? Your yeah. thoughts. Yeah, right. And, and actually, has as your head and heart changed? Yeah. And is your consciousness and awareness changed? We hope so. We hope so. Music is abundant. It is not competitive. It shouldn't be. Music at its best, the music world at its best, we stand on each other's shoulders and we stand together. And so hopefully this is a moment where that can move forward. Uh, Winner founded Rolling Stone in 1967 and spent decades at the helm before leaving the magazine in 2019. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has been criticized for its relative lack of female and minority inductees. Mm -hmm. So not just an issue with this article, but an actual issue with the hall itself, though they've made some recent improvement. And according to reporting, the 2023 class of inductees was the most varied in the organization's history with women and musicians of color outnumbering white men. Hallelujah. Yeah, took a long time to get there, but yes, there's progress. There's progress. So we're going to move on from that to uh, a quick look at something going on relative to the environment. We have a picture for our environment, for the global environment. And this is a very interesting story that caught our eye. And some of you may be aware of it already and be experiencing here in our present day. Home insurers cut natural disasters from policies as climate risks grow. This is going on. Some of the largest U.S. insurance companies are saying that extreme weather has led them to end certain coverages, including uh, they are now excluding natural disaster protections, and they are also raising premiums. So you used to be able to buy hurricane insurance along the eastern seaboard, and some insurers now say, no, we're not covering that. Yeah. At least five large U.S. property insurers have told regulators that extreme weather patterns caused by climate change Mm -hmm. have led them to stop writing coverages in some regions 
excluding protections from various weather events and raising monthly premiums and deductibles. Lee, I think this is so interesting where we have some people denying climate change or the human effects on the climate and insurance companies, they're recognizing it. They absolutely are. It conjures up that phrase, follow the money. (laughs) It does. The money will tell you. Yeah. In kind of a perverse backhanded way, the profit motive here is exposing the false equivalents. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So major insurers say they will cut out damage caused by hurricanes, by wind and hail, from policies underwriting property along coastlines, but then also in wildfire country. Okay. Insurance providers are also more willing to drop existing policies in some locales as they become more vulnerable to natural disasters. Now, drop existing policies. Hmm. It's possible to be a property owner and not be able to get insurance on that property. Yeah. Most home insurance coverages are annual terms, so providers are not bound to them for more than one year. This means that individuals and families in places once considered safe from natural catastrophes could lose crucial insurance protections while their natural disaster exposure intensifies as global temperatures rise. Now, in its response to the regulator survey, one company nationwide said it no longer underwrites coverage for properties within a certain distance to the coastline because of hurricane potential, what Leah described earlier. Other changes will come, Nationwide said. More targeted hurricane risk mitigation actions are being finalized and will start by year-end 2023. Society hasn't really absorbed, Lee, this change in climate. We, we haven't fully. We see these maps that show the way the U.S. will look in 2050 or 2070. right. And, right. It's horrific to think of yeah. human implications if that were to happen, but we're still kind of going, wow, that, that, looks, that looks pretty serious. Meanwhile, insurance companies are jumping right. <laughs> yeah. because of the financial yeah. implications. So you're, I think you make a great observation. We're at an odd moment in time because as we are exposed to legitimate, real evidence-based information about climate change, in that moment when we see that, it's fearful. We go, oh, geez, we need to do something. And we may kind of freeze. But then in the next hour, back to our regular routine. Yes, right. Exactly. So U.S. homeowners have faced unprecedented disasters in recent weeks that have underscored the new challenges facing insurance markets. U.S. insurers have dispersed almost $300 billion in natural disaster claims over the past three years. And that's a record for a three-year period. Mm. And natural catastrophes just in the first six months here in 2023 in the United States caused $40 billion in insured losses. And that's the third costliest first half on record. Wow. Well, many of these policy changes may be unfavorable to certain consumers, but they are important for the survival of the broader insurance market. But weather patterns are changing as the planet warns. A member of President Biden's Wildland Fire Mitigation and Management Commission said, there is no wildfire season anymore. It's year-round. Stop. That statement. Is staggering. That is staggering. Right. Wildfire season used to be for a few months. Yes. And now it's always. And we can kind of go, wow, that's... Yeah, until the fire's outside my home, Mm -hmm. what do I care? Right. You ought to care. You ought to care. Yeah, because there are folks who are looking outside their window and confronting that that reality. Absolutely. 
So major hurricanes are becoming more frequent and hold more intense volumes of rain. And Tornado Alley, historically an area that is swarmed by twisters, it goes from Texas and Oklahoma up through Kansas and Nebraska, that whole pattern of weather is moving to our east recently. And Lee, this one's personally very interesting to me, I'll say a few decades ago, when I was living in Wichita Falls, Texas, that was Tornado Alley. And the tornadoes would follow a line that went through Wichita Falls there in North Texas, would usually go just north of Dallas and Fort Worth and go on its way. And there's, there's more than one tornado alley in the country. But that specific one has moved up north. Mm-hmm. You now, now find the tornadoes that would have been going through that line in North Texas, they now go through Oklahoma City. Yeah. And it is clear as day yeah. that the climate change... And it has caused that. Absolutely. So I grew up in a small town in northeast Kansas. And when we were teenagers, we enjoyed tornado season because we get in our car and we go chase them. Yeah. And that's how stupid we were. But <laughs> it was kind of fun. Point is, got, there haven't been a sighted tornado in no. that region now for several years. No. They just don't exist anymore. The patterns have changed. Yeah, yeah they've moved on. Okay, so we're going to move toward... Uh, a conversation about spirituality. And we've talked about a picture that we have for spirituality. We came across something uh, in this arena that we just thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll make a couple of points about it, but we think it's probably even more interesting just for you to listen to it and to make of it what you will. So this is uh, from Jesus of Nazareth, who spoke Aramaic. It was the common language of Judea in the first century A.D., And this is the Lord's Prayer translated from Aramaic directly into English. Really interesting. Instead of from Aramaic to Greek to To Latin Latin, to to English. English, Where numerous subtleties and nuances are washed out. Yeah. Yeah. Or where, you know, there were human beings who were adding their (laughs) own thoughts, little thoughts and interpretation to it. So here's, here's a version of the Lord's Prayer. O cosmic birther of all radiance and vibration. Soften the ground of our being and carve out a space within us where your presence can abide. Fill us with your creativity so that we may be empowered to bear the fruit of your mission. Let each of our actions bear fruit in accordance with our desire. Endow us with the wisdom to produce and share what each being needs to grow and flourish. Untie the tangled threads of destiny that bind us as we release others from the entanglement of past mistakes. Do not let us be seduced by that which would divert us from our true purpose, but eliminate the opportunities of the present moment. For you are the ground and the fruitful vision, the birth, power, and fulfillment as all is gathered and made whole once again. And so it is. So beyond the remarkable beauty of that language, beautiful language. here was my initial reaction to it. If we were to recite the Lord's Prayer as we were taught it in the 20th century in the United States of America. In Christian churches. In Christian churches. It's a supplication. It's basically, uh, hey, Father or Holy Spirit or whomever, we're incapable here. You need to provide for us. And it's basically what I call a supplication, meaning we put ourselves before your omnipotence. This is more like you are empowering us to do things and make choices in our present lives. Yeah, I didn't hear a patriarch. Nope. In this. 
And it is this prayer to creation. It is. It right. is this beautiful, and as you said, supplication, it's, it's an invitation and saying you are part of creation. Yes. Ah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, the, it's, the language is just beautiful. So here is another direct Aramaic to English translation version. So let's read this one. O birther, father, mother of the cosmos, you create all that moves in light. Focus your light within us. Make it useful as the rays of a beacon show the way. Create your reign of unity now through our fiery hearts and willing hands. Your one desire then acts with ours, as in all light, so in all forms. Grant what we need each day in bread and insight, subsistence for the call of growing life. Loose the cords of mistakes binding us as we release the strands we hold of others' guilt. Don't let us enter forgetfulness, but free us from unripeness. From you is born all ruling will, the power and the life to do, the song that beautifies all from age to age it renews. Truly, power to these statements, may they be the source from which all my actions grow, sealed in tr trust and faith, amen. So right from the shoot here, we get father mother of the cosmos. That's a revolutionary idea. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, some of the lines in this, but free us from unripeness. Yes. The notion of just, we're always growing, yes. learning, we're ripening. We're ripening. What yeah. an image. Yeah. What an image. And the song that beautifies all. Yeah. That's what life is, isn't it? Isn't yeah. it a great unfolding song with many verses? From age to age, it renews. I've Magnificent. Magnificent. We, uh, so we hope that's a point of reflection for all of you as it was for us. Uh, we're going to move on. We occasionally in these podcasts have a segment that we call what if, and it's just some imagining that we think is kind of interesting to think about. Yes. And we just have gone from a little segment here where we're talking a lot about creation in the course of the spirituality. So let's, let's stick with this, you know, creation thing a little bit. And we're going to ask a what if question. What if our science advances to the point that we can, we'll say molecularly, know the origins of our physical self and molecularly know the origins of what we ingest. What if after our physical death, we can know where our physical self goes to in other humans, mm. plants, animals, or things? Mm. That To me, this isn't that far-fetched to imagine in the future no. that, Lee, they'd be able to, they, there's always the they, right? Right. They would be able to look at you and me and basically say, well, your molecules as they exist right now, 50% of them, the last form they were in was dirt. Mm -hmm. 20% right. were in these plants mm -hmm. or whatever. Right. Yeah, it's a different kind of genealogy. Yeah. <laughs> and I, to me, that image of having science that could tell us that and and the truth is, that is the truth. Yes. We don't know what that is, but we did come from these other forms. If we knew that, 
And if we had that awareness of it, would it change our feeling about connection to yes. the world? Yeah. How would we think and be, believe and behave differently? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so we have phrases with death that are like from ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We have this notion that we are going to other forms physically mm-hmm. and that our physical body goes to something else. Do we really live as if we were that connected to the world, right. both in terms of our origin and, and then where we go. Yeah, I'm reminded of the heart-rending story of a lot of indigenous peoples in the United States whose land was co-opted by the U.S. government. And the greatest heartbreaking loss to them was their connection with the earth, with their connection with the universe. And now that they live, as others do, kind of apart from that universe, that's the most dislocating thing for them. And they lots of times had poetry or had sayings or rituals that celebrated that Uh, connection in a way that we'll kind of hear about that and go, wow, yeah, okay, that's kind of, that's interesting. We don't feel that depth of connection. We didn't inhabit it in soul way like they did. We have, as a general society, when they address prayers to mother earth, it was as though they were talking to their mother because that was the belief system. Yeah. So it conjures up kind of an interesting thought about death. And, you know, when we die, it kind of raises the question of, am I going somewhere else? Yeah. And, and we can, you know, have the spiritual thinking about that, but certainly in physical form, it would be kind of like, well, no, you're, you're not really going anywhere. Right. You're, you're going to be here. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your physical body is going to break down and maybe I'm not going anywhere and I'm still right, right here. here. I'm still here. Mm-hmm. And I, I just love that thought. Maybe it's, maybe it's both. Yeah. And I kind of tend to think that, you know, most of the time where I kind of go, no, nah, I think our soul and spirit has a journey, but our physical form is hanging around, yeah. you know, yeah, and still here. all of our descendants are still here. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there's a, a wonderful quote about this from Mark Twain. He was asked about death and he said, I do not fear death. I had been dead for billions and billions of years before I was born and had not suffered the slightest inconvenience from it. <laughs> yeah. And as Mark Twain was prone to do, he's saying three or four things with one phrase. Yes. Interesting to think about. It's what a, if? It's a great what if. What if? Well, as we move toward the conclusion of today's podcast, we always like to share a moment of optimism and momentum and gratitude. And this time we're going to use E.B. White's Beautiful letter to a man who had lost faith in humanity. If you don't know who E.B. White is, uh, an American in the early 20th century, brilliant writer and stylist. So in 1973, more than two decades after a young woman wrote to Albert Einstein with a similar concern, a man sent a very distressed letter to E.B. White, lamenting that he had lost his faith in humanity. And E.B. White, the beloved author who was not only a masterful letter writer, but also a professional celebrator of the human condition and an unflinching proponent of the writer's duty to uplift people, he took that very seriously. He took it upon himself to boost this man's sunken heart with a short but beautiful reply. His reply, which was written in March of 1973, when White was 74 years old, it endures as a spectacular celebration of the human spirit. It says, Dear Mr. Nado, as long as there is one upright man, as long as there is one compassionate woman, 
The contagion may spread and the scene is not desolate. Hope is the thing that is left to us in a bad time. I shall get up Sunday morning and wind the clock as a contribution to order and steadfastness. Sailors have an expression about the weather. They say, the weather is a great bluffer. I guess the same is true of our human society. Things can look dark, then a break shows in the clouds and all is changed, sometimes rather suddenly. It's quite obvious that the human race has made a queer mess of life on this planet. But as a people, we probably harbor seeds of goodness that have lain for a long time waiting to sprout when the conditions are right. Man's curiosity, his relentlessness, his inventiveness, his ingenuity have led him into deep trouble. We can only hope that these same traits will enable him to claw his way out. Hang on to your hat. Hang on to your hope and wind the clock for tomorrow is another day. Sincerely, E.B. White. Hmm. And so from Lee and me, here's a related thought. When any of us try to help humanity survive and survive well, we figuratively meet every person in the world and experience every place in the world by trying to secure a wonderful future for humanity. If you do that, you have seen every amazing place on earth. You've been there. Can you see all of those places that you've been because of helping other people? You're working for the betterment of every person on earth. Can you see their faces? Can you feel the touch of their hand on yours? Just by doing your unique part to love and to help others. Know that you are making a difference and that you fully represent the real hope for our world and are fully connected to every person, every place, every form of life on our beautiful planet. We close today by asking, what are your ideals? What are your pictures? What are your actions to take? What is your influence to use? Thank you for joining us. Take care. Thanks for joining us today. As always, feel free to explore more about Pictures Out There at picturesoutthere.com and major social media sites. We hope you have the day of your dreams, the day of your pictures.